Isaiah chapter 30. In your pew Bibles, look at page 751 or open your hard copy Bibles or your devices. This morning, hear God's word as it comes to us, beginning at verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For those officials are at zone, and his envoys reach Haines. Everyone comes to shame through a people who cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beast of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, lying unwilling to hear the inst- unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly at an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to make a fire from the earth or dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust, shall be your strength but you are unwilling and you said no we will flee upon horses therefore you shall flee away and we will ride upon swift steeds therefore your pursuers shall be swift a thousand shall flee at the threat of one at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain like a signal on a hill therefore the lord waits to be gracious to you And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Please be seated.
love to watch the children run out. I noticed that some of them have shoes on, so I'm wondering what has happened since I left. <laughs> it may need to be a sessional matter that to bring up the next meeting. Uh, why these shoes? Why there's shoes on these children? Anyway, what a privilege it is to preach to you uh, this morning. Uh, Trinity is where TC and I began what is now 36 years of of ministry. We left Montgomery in 1991 to work in Zachary, Louisiana, and from there on to Perth, Australia, where we've been for 12 years. God is good. God has been good to us. Uh, He's blessed us in many, many ways. There have been trials, too. But we minister and work in a country that created the word. No worries. No worries. She'll be right. You'll talk to people in all sorts of difficulties, and it's like, no worries, we'll figure it out. No worries also has the effect that somebody else will take care of it. Not going to bother with me. We have a term for a person who is carefree and, and happy-go-lucky and doesn't worry, worry about anything. He's called a larrikin. A larrikin, have a larrikin mentality. In our passage today, uh, Israel is in trouble, and they wish they could be larrikins. They wish that they could say, no worries. Somebody else is going to handle this. Uh, But that's not the way it is. It's around 740 B.C. and Israel and Judah are prosperous. And they've thought, we can do whatever we want because we're God's people. But they've turned away from God. And the fierce and the merciless Assyrians are coming. They're on the move. They're moving towards in. They're going to come. They're part of God's judgment upon his people. And they're threatening to invade And adversity has come. And what will they do? What are they going to do? Uh, Solomon had said when he dedicated the temple, when when adversity comes, when when battle is about, we'll we'll turn to this temple, we'll look to you. We'll look to our God. But that's not what they do. That's not what they do. This passage, they turn to make an alliance. To make an alliance and have someone else come deliver them. This passage has a lot to teach us this morning. I think about our gospel message, about the message that we take to others who are facing adversity or suffering under the consequences of not seeking God. Uh, We're going to have some applications to us too. We're not talking about those people over there who need the gospel. We need it too. We need to apply it to our life this morning. As we come before him. So hang in with there with me through this. And we'll arrive, I think, at one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. In the Bible, that's my opinion. I'll tell you why later. And we'll see how this ties into missions and evangelism. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to your word. Amen. Well, first, let's look at this. Verses 1 through 5. A people who look in all the wrong places... A people who look in all the wrong places. What's the problem? I mentioned it before. The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians were cruel. They were deadly. They would wipe out entire towns, not just kill people, take them off. They would wipe out entire, uh, entire towns. And rather than turn to Yahweh in prayer and repentance, they turned to Egypt. They turned to Egypt for help. Let's buy an alliance. Don't we do that today? I think we do. But let's buy an alliance with Egypt. Pharaoh can save us. We'll give them gold and they'll come to help us. 
Verse 1 says that they add sin to sin. The first sin, they didn't seek God. They didn't seek God because they were supposed to, to seek him. He said, I'm your God. I'll take care of you. Don't worry when whoever comes. Seek me and I will deliver you. And he does many times recorded in Scripture. But they didn't seek God because he tells them, Isaiah writes, this is not my plan or led by my spirit. The second sin was they looked to Egypt for help. So they added sin to sin. We do that too, don't we? Sometimes, maybe a lot of times. We'd like to say, oh, when problems come, when adversity comes, when when I'm facing it, I always just turn directly to God. He's my first, I go to him. But sometimes we don't, do we? We look for other ways around the problem. We look to our own efforts, our own strengths, uh, our own ways of, of solving this problem, of solving the problem. We don't seek God. Many times God says, don't go down this path. Turn to me. Seek me. Seek my spirit's direction. But we do it anyway. Because, let's face it, a lot of times in our lives, in our career, we think we know best, don't we? We know the best. We know this. We're smart people. What was the result? God tells him, you think you'll get protection, but instead, what are you going to get? And he mentions it three times. You're going to get shame. Shame and disgrace. You know, shame and disgrace and guilt, they're all related. And guilt is the feeling you get when you did something wrong or perceived you did something wrong. Shame is a feeling that your whole self is wrong. Shame is a feeling that your whole self is wrong. Benet Brown says, I define shame as intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or belonging. Ed Welch says some similar similarly shame is the deep sense that you're unworthy of love that you're unacceptable because of something you did something done to you or something associated with you you feel exposed and humiliated end quote shame and guilt are first cousins but they're not the same sin is about what you did shame is about who you feel you are or what you feel you are. We pastors are good. We're really good at explaining and talking about guilt. We're good about talking about sin and get that guilt away because what? It's the gospel message. Jesus Christ took your sins on the cross. It's, we're good about talking about that. But we're not so good with dealing with shame. We're not so good about dealing with shame because, you know what, you can know you're forgiven. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm forgiven My sins are in the past. They are gone, but still feel unworthy. You can look in the mirror and know that I'm a Christian, but still feel I'm dirt. I'm nothing because of things that happened in the past, things that were done, or maybe things that were done to you. Some of you need to hear that, this message this morning. You need to hear the answer to that, because that may be the way you feel you know you're a christian a new creation in christ eternity's out there jesus loves me but still still there's those nagging thoughts i'm dirt because of what was done or done, i did or done to me you're still feeling shame well jesus knows this 
Jesus knows your shame. He knows the shame. He endured the shame, the shame of the cross. He took your shame to the cross with him. And here's what he did. Not only did Jesus forgive you of your sins, but he made you a new creation. He made you something completely new. Do you know, Christian, this morning that there's never been anything like you in the world? There's never been. You're you're a Christian. You're forgiven. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're unique. There's nothing like you. All you're waiting for is a body that's eternal. that will be given to you at the resurrection. For you're a new creation. Everything is new. The writer here is harpening back to the creation. When God created the heavens and earth, you're completely new. You're different. That should encourage you. That should encourage you. Scripture says that for the joy set before him, that's Jesus, he endured the cross, ignoring its shame. What was the joy? Ever think about that? What was the joy set before Christ that he could endure the suffering and the agony and the pain that he did? What was the joy? The joy was you. The joy was you and me. That one day, because he's been to the cross, he'll spend eternity with you and me. The Bible is the story of God saying, I want a people for myself. I want to spend eternity with them. I want to be with them. I want them to be mine. I want them to be with me forever and ever. So he went to the cross. That was the joy you are. You're what makes God rich. That should encourage you. That should make us feel at least a little bit worthy that Jesus Christ, the creator, the God of the universe, wants us, wants you and me to be with him forever in eternity. The woman who had endured in Mark chapter 5, endured the shame of medical condition for 12 years. She was an outcast. She was unclean. She couldn't even have fellowship with other people. She couldn't go worship. She certainly felt unworthy and shamed. Jesus heals her, and what does he say to her? Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Jesus made her whole again. He took away her sin and her shame, and he has done the same for us. Think about that. Think about that. Then we move on, verses 6 through 7. A people who look for help that never comes. A people that look for help that never comes. This is its not a subtitle in your Bible. It says, an oracle to the beast and animals of the Negev. The Negev desert. Uh, it says, so they loaded up. What did they do? They loaded up the riches and treasures and they set out for Egypt. We're going to go buy this alliance and Pharaoh's going to save us. And they were going through, interestingly enough, the same wilderness that they'd wandered around in for 40 years. But this time without the protection of God. And they go back to a people, interesting too, they're going to a people who had enslaved them. They're going to a people who had enslaved them for 400 years. Isaiah, in this, I think he just seems to feel sorry for the animals who carry these heavy loads. He feels sorry for them. uh, Because donkeys, camels that were loaded up, as a little aside, parenthesis here, in Australia, we have over 750,000 camels in australia 
Uh, they were brought in to explore the country, and they really liked it. So you get that for free this morning on that. But Isaiah is feeling sorry for them. Why? Because their labor is in vain. Their labor is in vain. Egypt's health is worthless and empty. When he says, uh, I will call you Rahab, who sits still. This is not the Rahab, uh, proper name of the woman in the book of Joshua. Uh, but it's the name of a powerful Canaanite, coiling monster sea creature who is powerful and who stirs up the waters. And you look and, and they believed it was a powerful force in that. And what he's saying is this. Egypt looks like a powerful ally. They look like something that's going to deliver. They look like something's going to save. But they're not. They're not. They'll sit still. They'll do nothing. You're about. Chances are. And uh, in Australian, uh, Australians love to gamble. They love to gamble about everything. Uh, and they gamble a lot. And it's legal everywhere and, and all that. Uh, it's so much so popular that the Australian government requires a disclaimer on all ads on television or in print about gambling. You'll see this wonderful commercial about a big casino in town and then as it fades out this pops up on the screen chances are you're about to lose (laughs) chances are you're about to lose they tell people that israel chances are they were about to lose and they were isn't it difficult to watch friends and family invest so much into things that don't deliver we watch people Put their lives into things that don't bring real happiness and joy. The next extreme sport, the next this, the next that. They go on to that. It's heartbreaking and it hits home when perhaps when it's someone you love. Perhaps a family member. Perhaps your child who is walking outside the way and will of the Lord. You know, two of our three sons have yet to embrace their covenant promises. They have yet to embrace their covenant promises. One was baptized right over there. There's no greater burden on the heart of a parent than a wayward child. You pray and you trust and worry and fear for them. Some of you are there. Some of you are there. But don't lose heart. Because in a few minutes, we're going to hit a verse that will encourage you. Verses 8 through 17, we see a rebellious people who won't hear, a rebellious people who won't hear. Isaiah doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back uh, on the description of these people. He says, you're deceitful, you're rebellious children who don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel. They despise his word and oppress others. They want nothing to do with God. They think they're okay, but they're really like a wall that's bulging out that just at any moment could simply collapse. And that collapse is going to come. And they'll be destroyed. They'll be broken into little useless pieces. Uh, In Australia, again, we're seeing the beginnings, the beginnings of out and out public opposition to the church. But for the most part, people are just indifferent to the gospel, indifferent to Christianity. They really don't care. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, just leave me alone. I don't care. I'm not interested in what you have to hear. And I really probably don't understand what you hear. Because Australia is a very prosperous country. The average person can marry or not, raise a family, put them through school, retire, 
and do very well on just a normal pay. Success is achievable in Australia. And also, you get four weeks of paid vacation a year, plus holidays. That's an incentive to come to Australia and work. But for many Australians, there just is no God-shaped vacuum in their heart. No yearning for something they're missing out on. Uh, We're doing quite well, thank you. Many would tell you. Here in the USA, we're running more and more into people like this. Uh, And we're going to have to learn how to talk to them. We're going to have to learn how to engage them. We'll talk about some tonight. We're going to have to learn how to get on their level, understand where they're coming from, and meet them where they are, and share the gospel. If you say the word sin, they go, what? Or if you said, if you died tonight and stood before God, and they go, wait, 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 what? I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. A girl who used to cut my hair asked me one time, she said, hey, I live across from this, I think it's a church. Now, what are those people that go into churches called? And I said, Christians? And she said, yeah, 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 that's it, that's it. I couldn't remember what they're called. More and more we're seeing this. This is what we're going to have to learn to engage with the gospel and figure out how to find common down to present the gospel. Isaiah continues, he reminds them that salvation and deliverance from the Assyrians is found in returning to the Lord. But they think this, oh, don't worry, even if we lose, we've got fast horses. We'll get away. We can get away. And God says, what? No, the Assyrians have faster horses. And they're going to catch you. And they're going to destroy you. Uh, They're going to destroy you. In fact, you'll end up destroyed and isolated. And he uses a great picture, like a lonely flag on top of a hill. Isn't this a good description of what sin does to us? Isn't this a good description of what sin does to us? We rebel, not wanting God's rest and peace. We want to do it our way until we end up, what, alone and broken. Or we can end up alone and broken. Because, you see, sin never delivers what it promises. Bob Austinson used to say that from right here. Sin never delivers what it promises. I want all of you young people, teens, college, to listen to me for a moment. I'm an expert. I was a youth pastor for 23 years. Youth, college, family, all that kind of stuff. I loved every minute of it. But here's what I know. The teenage and college years are the most difficult years you will ever face in your life. The teenage and college years are the most difficult years you will ever face in your life. Parents, you need to listen to that and understand it too. It's a whole different world out there from even when you were in school. It's a different world. Your faith is challenged every day because you know what? Nobody seems to really be living for Jesus. Nobody's living for Christ. Everybody is doing everything, and there's no real consequences. They're having a lot of fun. Your faith is challenged because you're trying to live for Jesus. No one else is, but do they seem to be suffering in consequences? No. So why shouldn't I do that? Why shouldn't I get involved in that? I don't have time to go into it, but remember this. Psalm 73, that's your psalm. If you're a young person, whatever, or a mom and dad, sit down. Read this psalm this afternoon because in the in the, in the psalm, the psalmist struggles with that exact question. Why be good? 
Why follow God? Why not get into sin? Because it looks like everybody's doing well. It looks like everybody's doing well. Then he comes to an understanding. Ah, he sees the truth. It's not as great as it looks. Sin really doesn't deliver. It's worth it to follow God. Young person, you're going to have to determine in your heart that you'll live for Jesus even if no one else is. You've got to determine that in your heart. In your heart. In 23 years, I've never heard a young person say, Boy, I regret that I followed Jesus. I regret that I stood on my own. Never heard that. We'll move along. Let's get through this. Now we come to our amazing verse, verse 18. A God for these people. This brings us to that. I think it's a surprising and hopeful verse, and I think it's profound. What does God say to those who are covered with guilt and shame, who are looking at the wrong places for answers that will not come, who don't want to hear, who are suffering under the judgment of God for their sin, refusing to come to him and return, going to other gods? What does God say to them in verse 18? He says, therefore... So remember that if the therefore is there, everything in front of it was important. Therefore, because you don't want me, says God. Therefore, because you disobey me. Therefore, because you run everywhere else and you won't do things my way. You reject me. You rebel against me. You don't want to hear me. What does he say? I do. I, 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 I what? Read the next words. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious. The Lord waits to be gracious. Here are people who didn't want anything to do. It says, he waits to be gracious? That must be, that can't be right. That can't be right. He waits to be gracious. The word here, uh, waits, means it's waiting with anticipation. To this rebellious people, God waits in eagerness to give grace that forgives and restores. What an amazing God. There's just no God like our God. There's just no God like your God. Who would look at a people who want nothing to do with him and say, Grace, I'm ready to give it to you. I'm right here. It's the least that we expect, but it's what God does. No greater illustration of this than Jesus in the than given by Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. The father waits, and he sees his son in the distance. And what does he do? He runs to him, and he hits him with his cane, and he smashes him to the ground and says, you rebellious and stupid son, why can't you be like your big brother? Is that what he does? No. He runs and embraces him and calls his servants, restore him. Restore him. Let's have a party. My son has come home. That's the Lord. That's what the Lord does. We need to remember this. That our sin doesn't push God away, but draws him close. Dane Ortland, you may have studied his book, Gentle and Lowly, says the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all around him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move towards that sin and suffering, not away from it. To move towards it, not away from it. How amazing is that? It's hard to understand. Some of you will wrestle with that thought. That can't be true. But it is. 
But it is. He came. He went to the cross. He knows your sin. And he moves towards you to show more grace. Because when he does this, he is exalted and glorified. When God gives unmerited grace and forgiveness to a sinner, who gets the glory? He does. Not us. We didn't do anything but just sin. But he comes and glorifies himself because he loves us unconditionally with his unmerited favor. What does this have to do with missions and evangelism? I'll put it in the form of a question. Well, if the gospel is not a message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration and the removal of guilt and shame, then why even go to the mission field? Why even go if, if we don't have a message like that? Why evangelize at all? What good news would we have for the lonely, for the afflicted, for the guilt-ridden, for the rebellious, for the doubting, for the shamed, for the larrikins who don't care? What would our message be? We wouldn't have one. Without grace and without a gracious God, Christianity would be no different than any other world religion based simply on good works and empty philosophy. Micah, the prophet Micah, was a contemporary of Isaiah. He wrote these words, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. It's God's delight to extend mercy. And this gives us confidence, doesn't it, when we go to the gospel? Because we can share with anyone, in any condition, in any state, our neighbor, our friend, our person at work, the people that live across the street, our children, whatever. It's confidence that no matter what's going on in their life, God is gracious. And God is merciful. And he can change them. He can change them. For our God delights to show mercy and runs to the prodigals, to bring them home. And we're going to celebrate that in a few minutes at the Lord's table. Celebrate. It's a meal of celebration. Celebrate your salvation. But be humbled also as you hold the elements that God gave himself for you. For he is a God of grace and mercy. That's our message. That's what we take. And it's powerful in this world. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you, O Lord, that we can go to the world with a message of grace and mercy. That we can tell ourselves this message of grace and mercy. And that we can look in the mirror and realize, I'm a new creation in Christ. O Lord, what you have done for me. How amazing is that? In Jesus' name, amen.